Good morning, people. Good morning. Welcome to El Paso Bible. It is good to see you guys. We all survived the first week of 2022. So that's good news. If you did pick up a bulletin, you'll notice that uh, most of our ministries are starting back up. And so I'm just going to go down the list here in order of the dates. Uh, so January 16th, our church luncheon, the first one of this year. January 16th, following the worship service. We also have our women's Bible study starting back up January the 18th. That's a Tuesday, Tuesday morning at 930. Uh, for all you teens, we are starting today at 6 p.m. And last but not least, we are having our men's triple B uh, January 22nd. That's, is, that a, is that a Friday or a Saturday? That's a Saturday at 5 p.m. So um, put it in your calendars. Uh, pick up a bulletin if you're not sure what I said. <laughs> So I am reading uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, th that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we are thankful this morning for uh, just allowing us to come together as a body, as a family, and worship you. And we ask that you bless our time together as we do so. That you encourage us through the teaching and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us, church?
rose up from that grave My God still rolling stones
may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy New Year's to you. Uh, I know that you were blessed by Jacob's uh, message last week, and uh, we had a little trip out of town and made it back in one piece. That's always good. Uh, we can do that. Um, so thank you for that opportunity. This morning we're going to actually start a new series. And this is not something, oh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church, Adventurers Only. Remember, this is Communion Sunday. No. All right, now don't correct me if I'm not wrong now. I, I didn't even say correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I wasn't wrong. Uh, yeah, so adventurers, you guys can go. Younger kids all in, all in one class there. Lead the way there. Uh, it's not something that we get to do a whole lot here at El Paso Bible Church, uh, given the relative swiftness that we go through the books of the Bible. But we're starting a new series in First Thessalonians this morning. And uh, again, you know, some, we go from a book from the beginning, generally, right, there's some exceptions. We observe some holidays individually. Every once in a while, I, I bow to your pressure, and I give you a Valentine's Day sermon when Valentine's Day is on Sunday. I think I did that. But largely, right, we preach from one end of the book to the other, and so that may take six months. It may take a little over two years, I think, is probably the longest I've done. Uh, but just as a reminder, there's things that are, that are important when we start a new series that we talk about, uh, things like the character of the book, the character of the author. And we're gonna, so we're going to take a few minutes to do that, to cover some of the things that we, we should do at the beginning of an introductory uh, series like this, um, and it's something I try to do every time, right, at least to remind myself. Um, and so in, in the interest of doing that, we have this book is one of many in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. So I don't have to tell you about who the Apostle Paul is, we just got done with Ephesians. It's the same guy. Uh, very, very few people that are, uh, well, informed people capable of rational thought would disagree that Paul wrote the book. This isn't one of the disputed ones. Um, and so he wrote this book. Some people think that it was the first one he wrote, uh, and it's close. Uh, I happen to hold that he wrote Galatians first. Uh, some people think that First Thessalonians squeaked its way in before Galatians. Um, if you want to have a big knockdown drag out about that, go find somebody else to do it with. But uh, it's close. I won't fight you on it, but I do have my opinion. Um, I'll, and y'all know I'll fight about some things, right? But I don't fight about that. Um, and so I think it was probably around 51 A.D., fairly early on in Paul's ministry. Uh, and it's going to a, a city, a town in which uh, this is, this is strange for us to grasp. There was only one church because Paul planted it there, um, and so there wasn't a whole lot of church shopping, right? We, we have that dynamic all the time. Um, and unfortunately, when we find people that are church shopping, we end up church selling. And I don't do that. That makes people upset sometimes. Um, I really don't care if people are shopping when they come here, but I have nothing to sell. So we are in an impasse at that point. Uh, we're just about the Bible here. Uh, and part of my understanding is that that's how the church was designed to operate 
um, and we see that evidence here at Thessalonica. There was one, one church that was planted there. Uh, Thessalonica is an important city. It was uh, an important port city back in Paul's day. It's still an important port city. This is not a distinction that every city gets in Scripture. Uh, Ephesus succumbed to uh, silt, if nothing else. Uh, they just pushed the harbor further inland, and they had to start somewhere else. But Thessalonica is still, as I understand it, the second largest city in Greece today. Um, and so you can go visit it if you want, if they still let you do that. I don't know. Actually, I lie. I, I, I say that. You may not be able to get on a cruise ship and follow the journeys of Paul like I've always wanted to do. That was the beautiful part of having our 20th anniversary in 2020. Finally, we were intending to go somewhere after 20 years on our anniversary instead of a restaurant. Didn't happen. So we're going to maybe hit the 25th uh, with something like that. Maybe, hopefully, the world gets a little more sane by then. We'll see. I've always wanted to do that. I always wanted to, to go follow Paul's journeys. So we might do that. Uh, but it's a very Greek city. Uh, so, you know, this is under Roman rule, but Thessalonica being a very important port city, uh, having been established uh, by Cassander way back following Alexander the Great. Very Greek city within uh, the Roman Empire, and they were fairly independent. They were a free city, so they had their own senate, their own assembly. They voted on their own policies for the most part and just played nice with Rome as much as you're able to do that. There was a governor there, but there was no soldiers stationed there. There was no big garrison, right? So I don't know if you, that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, but there was a time where Jacob and I uh, used to go to, to Juarez very, fairly frequently, simply to grab tacos. We'd, we'd like to tell you that we went because Jesus told us to go. We'd like to say that we went there to minister the Word of God, but we simply went there to sit on our keisters and eat barbacoa and drink Coke. Uh, we stopped going <laughs> about the time it was very evident that there were many, many soldiers garrisoned there. And every time you turned around, a 17 or 18-year-old kid is flopping around with a 308 on his shoulder like this. Quite dangerous, in case you don't know. The handling was not exceptional. But there was no garrison there, so it was relatively free. You didn't have to be scared all the time. Roman government governor there. And when we say occasion, so I'm going to talk about the occasion of the writing. Why did Paul write Thessalonians? Uh, he wrote it simply because they had some questions. They had some doctrinal questions. Everybody remembers the eschatology, the last things conversation near the end of Thessalonians. That's very important. One of the key things in the book. Um, but the purpose of Paul's writing is because the church needed his input. Sometimes the church needs his correction, right? So when he writes 1 Corinthians... You know, we went through 1 Corinthians a while back in Sunday school, and you, your, your ears bleed a little at how caustic Paul is when you read the words, how, how harsh he is in his correction, right? Some people think I'm direct. You guys need to read 1 Corinthians because all of 2 Corinthians was Paul apologizing for how harsh he was in 1 Corinthians. That's how it went. Uh, but sometimes they need his correction. Thessalonians didn't really need his correction, but they had some questions, and it was fairly early on. 
there wasn't the canon to go back to. Uh, Revelation wouldn't be written for another 40 years or so. Um, when it came to last things, uh, so there's encouragement, there's correction, there's comfort. These are the, the purposes, right? And all of these are seen in 1 Thessalonians, so we have a lot of eschatology in here also. Uh, but there's perseverance under persecution. Uh, something since uh, 2008, I've told you, was coming, even if you didn't feel it. It's coming. In fact, it's past coming. Some of that is here in the world, right, in ways that they would not have expected all over uh, the world. Uh, persecution. And so the ability to persevere, encouragement to persevere under that. Um, answering false charges against Paul. A lot of people went after Paul. And they would, they would accuse him of foolish things like being in it for the money. Wasn't that kind of foolish? They accused Paul of being in it for the money. That's why he only stayed three Sabbath days in Thessalonica and then left. He was just trying to grab a few extra bucks on his way somewhere more important. They were making accusations like that. A rebuke against laziness is in Thessalonians. Uh, admonition to not be lazy. And teaching to respect the leadership of the church. Those are all together uh, in Thessalonians. And Paul didn't seem to spend a long time in Thessalonica. Uh, he says in Acts, uh, or he says that when we read the record in Acts, there was three Sabbath days. Now, generally speaking, I would understand that to be consecutive, right? So he spent roughly 21 days there uh, in Thessalonica. Some people are of the opinion that it had to have been longer. And the basic reason than 21 days, in other words, he spent three non-consecutive Sabbath days. He may have spent up to six months there. And I don't know how they get to that point except that it's kind of a logical necessity because Paul's already talking to them about eschatology. Um, everybody in our day wants to jump to Revelation, right? But that's not the normal progression of doctrine. It's the last things. It's important, it's formative, but there are many other things that you would cover going into a synagogue in a pagan Greek city that you're intending to plant a church in um, that, would, that would lead you to that point. And three Sabbaths, even if you taught all day, aren't you all thankful that your pastor is so considerate? He lets you go after 35 or 40 minutes. Isn't that nice? I do that because I'm not good enough to hold you for four hours. I wish I was that good. I wish I was silver-tongued, you know, but, you know, I just don't. You know. It's just our, our tradition here. That that's about as much as we can do in one shot. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that, whether it was 21 days or six months. But he spent three days speaking on the Sabbath in the synagogue, which was nearly a record for him. He usually got rioted out of the place after the first one. So it's possible they were stretched out a little bit more. Anyway, so hopefully you've spent those few minutes opening or clicking or swiping to 1 Thessalonians. And let's look at this first uh, couple of verses. It's familiar sounding. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So there's three guys together. You'll recognize the name. Silvanus uh, is the Greek name for Silas. 
Um, and so Paul, Silas, and Timothy were together. He's speaking to people in a very Greek city in Thessalonica, and so he uses all three of their Greek names uh, there, and they're together. It may have been that Silas was the guy who was copying things down. Um, I have thought occasionally, because I've occasionally damaged uh, my fingers. I normally type really fast. I thought, oh, you know what I need? I need to follow the biblical example. I need to get an amanuensis. I need to get a scribe, somebody to write down, because I can't type like I used to be able to type. And then I realized that, I mean, I'm not this bad, but it might be like the person that does the sign language for our president, right? My, my brain doesn't work in a linear way, you know, so me typing my words out is probably the only way it'll work. And I kind of wonder if, if Silas was doing that for Paul, because it would be difficult, I think, with the length of some of his sentences and some of the phrasing that he does. So I don't know if that's what was happening. Uh, but he addresses it. This is, this is important because this is how an epistle was opened. This is how the introduction to letters was done in the ancient world. And, and we have some epistles in the Bible that are introduced differently, and that's of note because it doesn't follow the pattern. But what it tells us is that when Paul uses this form is that he is writing a letter. He's writing a letter that has a specific audience, and he has an intent and intended information that he's going to communicate to his audience in a particular way. And that helps us to understand what he's saying in the letter. It's a normal way, a standard form. And so as personal correspondence, it has certain elements that we're going to look for as we go through. Uh, we should expect that he will answer questions. We should expect that he's using actual vocabulary in the way that it was used by other people. Because that's how language works, right? It's a convention of uniformity. I can't make up my own language and expect you to understand it, despite what so many people do in El Paso in many churches. And all not just El Paso, right? I can't ex I'm not going to expect you to understand it if I just create... I, I had a gentleman one time come into the foyer and pray over me in what I can only describe as fake jumbled Chinese. That's what it sounded like. Um... It was not, uh, not edifying because he, even he didn't know what he said. Um, so that was problematic. There's a convention of language when you're writing a letter because it has an audience and you need your audience to be able to read it using the common meaning. So the second part of that form is that the audience is described. Right? And that's what we have here. So the audience is defined. He says it is to the church the church of the Thessalonians. So he's not writing to the government. He's not writing to the Senate. He's not writing to the fruit monger or the fish monger. He's not writing to any of the other people that are living in Thessalonica at the time. Um, he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians actually would be a better transliteration. A local church. And it's part of the big C church right? The big C church is the universal church. It's, it's all of the people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are believers in Jesus Christ. But he's writing to a particular locale under a particular set of elders that is being led in this community. And that's the shortest definition I can come up with for the church. I've tried to make it shorter because we're under continual pressure as pastors to make everything into a bumper sticker, you know? Make it memorable. People's attention spans are short. I'm like, listen, if your attention span is four words short, 
That's not my problem. Can we all agree? If the attention span is four words or less, then you need to make it longer. That, that's y'all's problem, not mine. But here's as short as I can get. The church is believers in Jesus Christ permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the church. There are people who believed in Jesus Christ uh, during his earthly ministry who passed from this life prior to Acts 2 who are not members of the church. Abraham, justified by faith, right? The archetype of being justified by faith, he's not a member of the church. He's not. He was never indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently. Is he going to be in heaven when we die? Are we going to see him there? Yes. But temporally, he's not a member of the church here. He was never indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He would not have known the name Jesus. But he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That doesn't qualify him to be a member of the church. Neither of those categories are. And I'll speak to the future. I think that there is a time that is coming where there are people who will believe in Jesus who also will not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit after the rapture, during the tribulation. Those people are also not members of the church. Um, This is important. Who is this letter written to? Who is expected to understand it? Who is expected to apply it? Who is expected to put it into practice in their lives? Who is being commended here? People in other ages were commended for other things. People in the future will be commended for other things than the church is commended for. So correctly identifying the audience is pretty important. One of the most important things. Uh, I would say as much as the author, identifying who wrote it is to whom he wrote it. So this is important. So he's writing it to this local body. Local body is generally defined as those uh, body of believers in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit who are under the leadership of at least one elder to shepherd and to guide and to pastor them. So that's important. Uh, a lot of people presume upon Scripture. And we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. Um, and they'll, they'll, not intentionally, maybe they, don't, maybe they don't understand what they're doing. But when Scripture says to the church or to the saints at such and such a city, people insert something like a qualification in there mentally. Say, well, they, the church certainly wasn't made up of all true believers. Certainly, there were some people there who were professors but not possessors is the phrase that I grew up hearing a lot. People who claim to believe in Jesus Christ, but don't. That doesn't matter, does it? To whom is it addressed? To the church, to the saints. Believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not simply someone whose posterior is in a padded seat in an auditorium. They may hear it, but it's not addressed to them. The same thing might happen. Back in my day, before I was married, I refer to it as my day, right? The days of my foolishness, perhaps. Because uh, I've been married for a while, 22 years yesterday. And Priscilla and I dated for five years before that we're engaged. So it's been like 27 years I've been bugging her parents all this whole time. 
27 years we've been together. But prior to, to our getting married, my wife still has them. I would write notes and letters to her, handwritten, and she could actually read them. The world was different. Don't expect to be able to read my handwriting anymore. I'm out of practice. But she keeps them, and they're a little bound up in a bag somewhere or something. And some, I don't even know where they are exactly. But, you know, I'm going to die one day. We forget that in the middle of COVID, right? We're all trying not to die. We forget we're going to die. And my children one day are going to be old. They're already old compared to my age. They don't understand this. I tell them, I'm not old. You guys are old. They're old kids. And one day they may find that and they may preserve those little notes and love letters and fuzzy-wuzzy little sentimental sayings that I wrote. Because I was. I was fuzzy-wuzzy sentimental back then. And it may pass a generation or one or two, and somebody may find them, and they may pass, as happens when you're in the antique business, sometimes a piece of furniture passes into somebody else's hands, and you find in the drawer the fuzzy-wuzzy sentimental notes. Is there a single word in that drawer with the fuzzy-wuzzy sentimental notes that was written to that person that may be 150 years after I die? No. Can they read it and be impressed? by my wonderful fuzzy-wuzzy sentimentality? Of course, because I wrote it. But it's not written to them. So let's not insert into the audience people who aren't there. Right? It's not going to matter a whole lot to them. They might be, oh, he really loved her. Yeah, and that, they would be right. But they're not going to know all the details and all, the imp- all of those things. They're not going to be able to take that and, and apply it to anything in their lives. So we don't want to do that. That's not who it's addressed to. He says that this is addressed to believers in Jesus Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who reside in Thessalonica and are under the care of the elders there. That's the definitions that we're dealing with. He says they're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their corporate identity. That's the part that they play in God's plan, in God the Father. Their identity is in Jesus Christ. Those two things work together as a local body. He says, grace and peace to you. May you have favor in your life. May you experience peace. I always thought that's kind of ironic coming from Paul. You know, uh, a theologian once observed, everywhere I go, they serve tea. Everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. You know, he came a lot of times, and he didn't leave in peace, but he's wishing peace on them anyway. As long as I'm not there, guys, (laughs) it's probably going to be pretty peaceful. So you can have grace and peace in in the things that you're doing for the Lord there. He eventually gets run out of every city he's been in, either in chains or out of them. So he says this to them. That's the, the introduction. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Now listen, Paul doesn't say that to everyone. We give thanks, all three of us, in the same room. Paul, Timothy, says, we corporately as those who are serving the Lord, who are on this missionary journey that we are on, they're from Corinth. He's writing it from Corinth. And I think he may be 
comparing what he experienced in Thessalonica to what he's seeing going on in Corinth. We give thanks always for all of you. Always. He didn't say that about every church that he ministers to, even any the churches that he planted. Some people, I'll give you a little insight. Pastors all get together. There's a lot of glasses, bald heads, and penny loafers. And they all have the same things to say. But if you're a young pastor and you go in and you talk about your, your desires, your, your strategy, your dream, what you want your church to be like, and you tell them, I would like, however big my church is, I would like it to be something like this that Paul could always give thanks for, for all of them. They, (laughs) are you kidding? Have you been in church at all, Pastor Skippy? Don't you know what it's like? And then they all start comparing war wounds. It's like being around, you know, I don't know, I imagine when I would go on post with my grandfather, everybody had their stories, right? It did exist. It did exist. It can exist. A church in which Paul could find something to give thanks for for everyone as he remembered them in their prayers. Why was that? Well, he tells us. He says that we're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. So their work, their work was faithful. Uh, that's a way of saying that they were obedient to Christ in the things that they did. They were obedient to Christ in the things that they did. Now again, audience is important. And Jesus told Israel to do a number of things that were important to the earthly kingdom that was to come that are different than what he told the church to do which is anticipating the coming of that kingdom in the future. Different. So you need to know what it is that Jesus told you to do and me to do as believers in Jesus Christ were indwelt by the Holy Spirit that was different than he told people who believed in Jesus Christ that were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There are different expectations there. But we are. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you here on this earth right now? Then you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is this age. That is this time. So this is to you. So Paul gave thanks. Their work was faithful because they were obedient to Christ. Their work was faithful. And then he says this. We're constantly bearing in mind these things about you, your work of faith and your labor of love. He says your work is obedient to Christ, but also your labor is sacrificially loving to the other people that are with you in this church. Sacrificially loving, that's in the definition of this kind of love, is laying aside your own interests and seeking out the interests of others. Paul says it in another place in Scripture. Give thanks. So they served others sacrificially. They were obedient to Christ. They served others sacrificially. These are things that they constantly thank God for as they remembered them in their prayers 
their work was faithful, their labor was loving, and the endurance or the perseverance, the steadfastness of their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Their work was faithful, their labor was loving, and their outlook was optimistic because their hope was enduring in Jesus Christ. Their outlook was optimistic about what God was doing at the church in Thessalonica. That's something I feel like frequently we lack in church, to be optimistic about what Christ is doing among those who have believed in him who are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit in one locale under one group of elders oversight. We need to be optimistic about what Christ has planned for our local church. Thessalonica was like that. They were obedient to Christ. They were loving sacrificially in their labor for others. But as they were doing that, they maintained an optimistic view about the hope that they had in Jesus Christ. That's important, to be optimistic about what Christ is doing. That's why they gave thanks. That's, those are the keys for being a body for which there's always something to give thanks for, if that makes sense. Knowing that Christ is in the presence of the Father, and he is our hope, and he has a strategy and a plan for what we're doing as a local body. So we're constantly bearing that in mind. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they always had that. Uh, they were praying regularly for these people, prayers of thanksgiving for these elements, knowing something about them. Verse 4 says this, knowing beloved brethren by God, or God's beloved brethren. You can put the word order in a couple different ways. They were beloved brethren of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. God loved them. His choice of you is what my, my NASB says. Choice, his, the, the possessive pronoun there is in italics as it should be. It doesn't exist there. It's actually a genitive and it says your choice or your choiceness. Now, I'm not a smart man. I'm not. But when I go to, to buy a roast for Christmas... I'm smart enough for this. Albertsons always sends out an ad around the week of Christmas. And in the week of Christmas, they have in their ad what they call a holiday roast. I grew up with a man who managed a meat market for 15 to 20 years before he became a woodworker. And I have no idea what a holiday roast is. I don't know what part of the cow a holiday roast is. Am I missing something, guys? I miss the primal called the holidays. You know what I mean? Like, I can't chop that up. What I look for, because it's cheap, man. It's like five bucks a pound. That's cheap for any kind of beef right now. It's tough as my boot. What I look for is a minimum choice. Because when they call it a holiday roast, you know it's not even select. It's 
utility grade, probably. Does that sound good? That sounds like what McDonald's gets away with saying they got 100% beef in their burgers. It's steer plate is what we call it. What am I looking for? Well, at least choice. Why am I looking for choice? Because as compared to the holiday roast, it's exceptional. It has exceptional characteristics. It has a little bit better marbling. It's a little bit younger animal. It's exceptional. Now, some people read this, and they don't have a problem inserting a possessive pronoun there, but it's not there, because they believe that, that every reference to everything that is chosen or choice in Scripture refers to God's selection of the individual in eternity past simply to receive the gift of justification, and I just simply, it just simply doesn't fit every context. And, and this one, Paul is talking about how exceptional the church at Thessalonica is. Being chosen before the foundation of the world may or may not be a fact of Scripture, but that's not the context here at all. The context is their exceptionality among all the churches in existence at that time. Because they labored lovingly, their work was obedient to Christ, and they were optimistic about what Christ was doing in their local body. They were choice, precious, exceptional. They had characteristics that were not a given in every local church, which Paul planted or ministered to or wrote to, like Romans. He had never been to Rome when he wrote Romans. They were precious, exceptional, and Paul gave thanks for them all the time. And that's actually the more common use of that word, ekloge. Their work was faithful, their labor was loving, their hope was enduring. They were obedient, sacrificial, and optimistic. They were exceptional. El Paso Bible Church, I would like for you to know that you are exceptional. We are exceptional. But that sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I'm, I'm we. We're we together. You are exceptional. We're not exceptional in size. Uh, but I have served churches substantially larger than we are that were far less exceptional in the way that people work, in a way that is obedient to Christ, the way they sacrifice lovingly for each other, and the way that many, many, many of those who have been involved in this church and a part of it have been optimistic about what Christ is doing through some very difficult times. I want to know that I give thanks for this church. Your choice. He goes on to talk a little bit more about how they are exceptional. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, your choiceness. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. I've talked to you about this. There's a, a little phrase that goes around, and nobody actually knows who said it first, right? But it says, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Have you heard that one? You've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it, right? That's kind of foolish. Because you can't preach the gospel without words. You don't understand the word preach if you say you can do it without words. In other words, you cannot 
indicate to people simply by handing them a bottle of water, this is a big one, that Jesus loves you and died in your place and wants you to trust him so you can live with him forever. A bottle of water is incapable of communicating that truth. But words are adequate to communicate the gospel. Because I just did it. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And he said, he who believes in me has eternal life. See? And if you don't have eternal life, you need to believe in him for it. How do I know I believed in him? You know when you believe something. You're being asked to believe things all the time. And you either believe them or disbelieve them, right? Has the pandemic situation showed you that more than anything else? People demand that you believe. They demand that you align. They demand that you submit. And the line between doing that is whether you believe them or not. You know if you believe it. So you know if you believe in Jesus. You know if you have eternal life because you believe that Jesus offered it to you simply by grace through faith. You believe it. But lots of churches did that. Lots of people to whom Paul wrote who were saints. They were naughty saints in some cases. First Corinthians tells us that. Not one time does Paul say naughty saints aren't saints. Naughty saints are naughty saints. I'm using the word naughty to get a little chuckle and it's working. They were more than naughty, weren't they? They were actually awful and still saints. Thessalonica was not. They were good. They were exceptional. They were choice. Because they didn't just receive the gospel. He says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He's saying you responded to the gospel the same way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy did and that it became the sole and full motivation for the way that you live your life. Thus, your work is obedient to Christ, your labor is sacrificially loving, and you can approach every day in that context in the church at Thessalonica ministering among each other optimistically and with hope that Jesus has something awesome planned for you. You receive the gospel powerfully. It was exceptional. The way that they emulated Paul. So as we close, and we are closing, I don't even know how many minutes I used. How many minutes did I use, Jacob? I don't know. We got a few more because we have communion today. But simply put, I'd just like us to ask ourselves. We just need to ask ourselves. That's who the church is. You know, our, our church is not this building or even that building, as much attention as it took and is taking. The church isn't that building either, as much as we're looking forward to that wonderful blessing of being able to use that space for the church's activities. That's not the church. And this isn't the church. If tomorrow we ended up meeting under a bridge, we would still be, guess what? El Paso Bible Church. And that may happen. We may be having to meet in the common area of a prison, for all I know, in the next 50 years. 
guess what we're still going to be? The church. El Paso Bible Church. Assuming they let us all come. We're, we're troublemakers. They may not let us all congregate together, but we'll do our best. We know, ask ourselves that this is who we are. Is our, is our work faithful? Or are we obedient to Christ? Are we working a labor of love? Are we strategically, you know, actively seeking ways to sacrifice in our love for others? But probably the most exceptional thing I can think of being as a church in this environment, in this climate, is being optimistic. Optimistic about what Christ holds in the future for El Paso Bible Church. And I tell you that just a little bit of optimism goes a long way in our current climate. A long way to being exceptional. Experiencing grace and peace. Because Christ is still in the presence of the Father. And he's still working his plan and his purpose with our body. And he's coming again. And that's what we're remembering. We're proclaiming that this morning. As we remember his death for us, we remember, as Paul tells us, that we proclaim his death until he comes. And he's coming quickly. He's been coming quickly, <laughs> but he is coming quickly. Still, that's what he says. Behold, I am coming suddenly. In other words, you should not look all around you to try to determine when the time is. You all sure, certainly shouldn't take out billboards with an alarm clock on them like that dummy did a few years ago. But you should live your life knowing that when it happens, it will come suddenly and quickly. And that being obedient, being loving, being optimistic is important when that happens. So I'm going to give us a few moments uh, before I ask the men to come forward. And you can spend that time in prayer before the Lord, or you can spend it in silence if that's your preference. Uh, but then I'll lead us at that point. And would you come forward at this time? Looks like we might need another man to come forward. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I didn't get a good head count. Steve, would you bless the elements?
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me, church? We'll dismiss with the last verse. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body on earth as we share See you next week.